Today's reading from the Word of God comes from the Gospel of John, chapter 21, verses 1 through 14. Please follow along in your own Bibles, on the screen behind me, or listen as I read the scriptures. Once again, that's the Gospel of John, chapter 21, verses 1 through 14. Following the reading, I invite you to respond in worship with the singing of the doxology. At that time, children are invited to join kids' crew through the door on your right. Hear the word of the Lord. Afterward, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Galilee. It happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, also known as Didymus, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them, and they said, we'll go with you. So they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize it was Jesus. He called out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. He said, throw your net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. When they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Then the disciple, whom Jesus loved, said to Peter, it is the Lord. As soon as Simon Peter heard him say that, it is the Lord. He wrapped his outer garment around him, for he had taken it off, and jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from shore, about a hundred yards. When they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish you have just caught. So Simon Peter climbed back into the boat and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, but even with so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, Come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared ask him, Who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread, and gave it to them and did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks. Good morning, friends. My name is Bryn. I'm one of the pastors here. I'm so glad to be worshiping with you this morning. It was so great to worship with you last week at our Easter celebration, and good to see you again this morning. Well, like we do every week, we like to, to take some time just to be silent before God and, and take a little bit of an inventory about what we're thinking about, what, are, what is going on in our minds and our hearts this morning that we need to offer to the Lord to speak to us about. And so I'd love for you to do that with me, and I'll open us with a word of prayer after a moment. God, you search us and you know us. We ask that this morning you would continue to reveal us to ourselves, the things that we uh, want to hide from about ourselves and about our world, 
we ask that you would shine your light on them and that in the safety of this place and in the safety of your presence in your community, you would teach us to live differently out of your resurrected life. So we offer this time to you as we open your word uh, as an act of our worship. We thank you for your death and your life again and the invitation to live into new life along with you. We love you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I want to start this morning with a little story. Uh, So a few years ago, there was a writer named Andy Crouch who decided he would do an experiment. He went to Harvard's research uh, search engine library, and he did a search for every book that had ever been written that had three words in it, change the world, change the world. And the results that came back were pretty interesting. He discovered that between the the years of 2000 and 2010, there had been 258 books written about changing the world. Books like Banana, the fruit that changed the world. Really riveting stuff. Nixon and Mao, the week that changed the world. Mauve, how one man invented a color that changed the world. 258 books written in just that one decade about changing the world. So he kept researching. He found that in the 1990s, there were 101 books written about changing the world, five equations that changed the world, five speeches that changed the world, 13 creative men who changed the world. In the 1980s, there were some books written about changing the world, but there were only 18 written in the 80s. In the 70s, there were four. The 60s had a spike. There were eight in the 1960s, books about changing the world. There were four in the 1950s. And in the entire first half of the 20th century, between 1900 and 1949, there were six books written, just a little more than one a decade, about changing the world. And what about before that? Well, it turns out that between the time that the Gutenberg Press, the Gutenberg Bible was printed on the Gutenberg Press in 1459 to 1899, almost half a millennium, there were zero books written about changing the world. Zero. Harvard's database, which is one of the best databases in the whole world, has zero record of any of our ancestors thinking in that time period to write a book about changing the world. So what could account for this sudden heightened interest in changing the world? Well, Andy Crouch came up with a groundbreaking theory for why we're writing all these books. After he did all his research, he said that more and more, we want to change the world. And Christians seem to have embraced this idea of changing the world pretty enthusiastically. I did a Google search with the uh, the words world changers this week. And every website for the first five pages of my search was about a Christian website or ministry about changing the world. We are world changers, or at least we want to be. It's why we, so, we talk so passionately about transformation and changing the world here on Sunday mornings. Every week, our message is basically the same thing over and over and over again, that Jesus changes everything about our lives and everything about our communities and our culture. Jesus actually changes the world. And if you have been a Christian for any length of time, chances are that you have heard message after message about Jesus changing the world, that God can actually change everything. Which led me to a question that I asked myself this week, and now I'll ask you, how's it going? 
After all we talk about at Anchor Bay, after hearing the gospel message, after gospel message in our communities on Sunday mornings, in our life groups, in the conversations that we have with each other when we see each other in the grocery store, has the gospel message really changed everything about your life? Maybe you have seen parts of your life transformed by the gospel, maybe even big parts, and I know you and I know some of you have. Maybe you have made major strides toward becoming the person that you know that God created you to be. But when you take inventory of all your habits, all your questions, when you're really, really honest, has the gospel really changed everything? Are all your spending habits in order? Are all your relationships reconciled? Are all your old wounds healed? How's it all going? And and maybe you're like me and, and there are still struggles that you face. Maybe you've seen some big changes in your life, maybe in in some big places, but in some places, those same old fears and anxieties and worries and bad habits, those things just keep coming up over and over again. So many of us, we meet Jesus, and we hear this world-changing good news of the resurrection that everything is different now, but then so many times we just go on home and we live like before we ever saw or met the resurrected Lord. So how do we start to get unstuck? How do we actually transform? How does the world actually change? Well, this morning we are wrapping up a sermon series that we have been in for the entire, this entire year uh, on the Gospel of John. And our, our pastoral team picked the Gospel of John because we have had so many conversations with church members and community members where people are just expressing this need for deep healing after the last few years. The challenges of the last few years have changed the world, and in some ways for the better. Some of us started to to pay more attention to our health or our mental health. We made big life changes for the better. We have outdoor dining now. It's great. And at the same time, so many of us over the last few years, we've experienced more family brokenness, heightened anxiety, loneliness, big doubts, loss of loved ones. And what the Gospel of John promises us is healing in those broken places through the life, the death, and the life again of Jesus. So over this last year, we have walked with him during his three years of ministry on earth. We've heard this invitation to come and see, come and experience who Jesus is. We've watched as he's performed signs and wonders and and showed the world who he was. We followed him to the cross as king and criminal. And last week on Easter Sunday, we declared with Thomas, you are my Lord and my God. And our story this morning meets Jesus' disciples just after he's been resurrected from the dead. His disciples have, have walked with him into the empty tomb. They have seen his body resurrected and alive again. They've seen the gospel with skin on. They've seen the, the good news in the flesh, in the person of Jesus. This is the only one who can actually truly change your life and change the world. And then right in the very next chapter, in John 21, one of the disciples, Peter, says something really interesting. He says, I'm going out fishing. I'm going out to fish. And at first, that might not seem all that significant. I mean, fishing was how they got food. And even after Jesus was resurrected, the disciples still had to eat, right? And Jesus still had to eat. But I think that there was something that was deeper going on in Peter's statement. And to get there, I just want to take a couple of minutes and fill out Peter's story, borrowing material from some of the other Gospels. 
So flip over with me to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 4, verse 18. And this is one of the first times in the gospel that we are introduced to to Peter. So verse 18, it says, While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he, being Jesus, saw two brothers, Simon, who's called Peter, and Andrew, his brother. So the gospel of Luke tells us that these men weren't super sophisticated. They probably couldn't read. They were day laborers. They were what you see is what you get kind of people. And they had a business. They had a fishing business. Fishing wasn't the best life back then, but it wasn't the worst. It wasn't a wealthy business, but fisher folk generally did make a decent living, especially in this region of Galilee. In, in Galilee, they had commercialized the fishing industry, so it, it, they had cultivated this craft over time. It was pretty nice work if you could get it, but it wasn't just a job for these fishermen. This, this was their identity. It was their security. It was life. And fishermen would, would pass on the fishing business to their kids and to the, their kids' kids, sometimes for whole centuries. And, and when we meet these guys fishing in the story, they're probably doing the only thing that they had ever known how to do. And this is a day just like any other day. It's ordinary fishermen fishing for ordinary fish. And this man named, named Jesus sees them and he calls out to them and he says something so life-changing, so world-changing, that they actually put down their nets And they listen to him. He says, come follow me. Come follow me. And at once they left their nets and they followed him. Now, leaving the the fishing business wasn't really that big of a deal. It was kind of casual business. You could pick it up if if you needed to later on. But leaving their nets, that was a big statement. Because nets were all they had to live on. And they could be a little expensive. They were what they relied on. Nets were the family business. They were security. They were identity. They were a symbol of family. Nets were everything. But when they heard Jesus' invitation, come, follow me, at once they drop everything and they follow him. At once they left their old way behind and everything starts to change. Three years go by and they would follow closely behind Jesus and they would learn from his teachings and they'd witness his miracles And then they'd see him get crucified on a cross, and then they would walk into an empty tomb and find him not there. And right after Jesus shows himself to them, after his resurrection in John's gospel, Peter says, I'm going out to fish. And it might not seem like that remarkable of a statement, but let's look at the words behind the words. So the New Testament was written in Koine Greek, ancient Greek, and the Greek word for going out, the Greek word is hupago. Can you say that with me? Hupago. So hupago has a couple different meanings. It might mean to withdraw or to go away. But if we look at the way that it's translated in the rest of the New Testament, the best translation for what Peter says here might be, I'm going back fishing. I'm going back. Peter has spent the last three years of his life following Jesus and doing what Jesus told him to do. And he was the only one of the the disciples who actually got to walk on water with Jesus. He was one of the first disciples to reach the empty tomb. But even after all of that, Peter knows that he has failed Christ. He had promised to follow Jesus until the very end. But the one time that Jesus needed his friend the most... Peter had denied knowing him over and over and over again. And so I can can only imagine the heartbreak that Peter must have been feeling, even in the midst of all of this joy that, that Jesus was actually resurrected from the dead. 
Even though things had already turned out all right in the end, even though Jesus actually rose from the dead, the good news is tainted with the bitter reality that Peter still failed him. And so he makes this heartbreaking statement, I'm going back fishing. I'm going back fishing. I'm going back to what I'm good at. I'm going back to what I know. I'm going back to where I know I'm not a failure. And it's what so many of us do. Lots of us have met the risen Jesus, and lots of us believe that he's pretty great, and maybe we even believe that he's the one who can actually change the world. But so many of us, we meet this life-changing, world-changing person of Jesus, and then we go back to fishing. We go back to hauling around the same old nets that we were hauling around before we ever met him, nets of, of judgmentalism when we're feeling inadequate about ourselves, nets of workaholism when we're not sure we matter without it, nets of, of trying to control our future or the future of people that we love, nets of relying on others' opinions for our own sense of value, anxiety, worry, fear, numbing our pain when we get overwhelmed. We can all think of those lists, right? We know Jesus, but for so many of us, nothing about our lives is really all that different from before. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed, and we're going back to fishing. Because here's the thing. Those old nets, they're really easy to rely on because sometimes they work. They're quick fixes, and sometimes they give us a hint of what we want, at least sort of, at least for a little while. There's a a writer named Dwayne Mueller who says it this way. He said, when we are increasingly drained, pressed for time and afraid, we are inclined to grasp for some substitute. We are more easily seduced by certain behaviors or possessions that promise to give us not precisely what we dreamed, but something that looks close enough. More importantly, it's always the thing we can get easier, cheaper, and faster in an increasingly busy life in the bone-weary ache of our exhausted heart. And this kind of swift comfort can become irresistible. We want God, for sure. We want to follow Jesus, for sure. And we are pretty sure, intellectually, that he's the one to change our lives and change the world. At least that's what we've been told over and over again. Except, except when I'm feeling inadequate or insecure or angry, or tired, or afraid. Those old nets, those old ways of of doing things, those defaults, they, they can feel so much more familiar. And familiar is comfortable. And familiar is easy. Familiar might not give us exactly what we dreamed our lives would be, but familiar can give us something that looks close enough. So we go out fishing, we fish for compliments, we fish for approval, we fish for relief or worthiness, or you fill in the blank. And in those moments, we default back to reliance on the old way, on the cheap way, the way that we know. We know it's not really what we need, but maybe it's close enough. Sometimes the nets work, but more often they don't. The disciples in the story, they go back fishing and look at John 21.3. So they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. The disciples in Jesus' story go back to doing things on their own without Jesus, and they don't catch any fish. But Jesus isn't done with them in this story. He never is. 
Jesus shows up on the shoreline. He, he looks at them, and his disciples don't recognize him. So he calls out, friends, haven't you any fish? And I like to imagine that Jesus is kind of teasing them a little bit, like he's saying this with a twinkle in their eye, like, don't you realize it by now? You need me. Friends, haven't you any fish? And then he says, throw your net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. When they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Because with Christ, things actually do change. Without him, we're just working with the same old nets and the same old patterns and the same old narratives that we lived in in the world before we knew him. And friends, we don't have any fish. If you look back at the story of Jesus, when he first calls Peter away from his old life and into a new life, Jesus makes this beautiful statement. He says, come follow me and I will make you fishers of people. Come follow me and I will make you. He doesn't say, come follow me and then do your best to be good in this life or, or try really, really hard to do extraordinary things. He says, come follow me and I will make you. When we make the decision to actually follow Christ, the promise that he gives us is that he will make us into the people that we were always intended to be. We don't have to get there on our own. All of our attempts at fishing, apart from him, will only turn our nets up empty again and again. But when we fish with him, the promise is that he will make us into the people that we were created to be. So to those fishermen and to us, he calls out, come, follow me, and I will make you into something more. Follow me, and something is going to happen in you and around you that is not up to you, that isn't based on your own abilities or agenda or actions. Follow me, and I will make you. And we see this invitation all over the Gospel of John. To the Samaritan woman with the bad reputation at the well, he says, drink the water I'll give you, and you will never go thirsty again. To the paralytic at the sheep's gate in John 5, he says, take up your mat and walk to the people who watched Lazarus walk out of the empty tomb in John 11, he says, take off the old grave clothes and let him go. Over and over from the shoreline, Jesus is calling out, oh, friends, haven't you any fish? Well, follow me, and I will give you the strength and the wisdom the cha to change, to forgive, to heal. Follow me, and I will lead you into true significance into eternal worth, into actual joy, no matter what circumstances you're facing in this life. Come follow me, and I will make you. So I'm going to share an example of uh, what this has looked like for me in my own life. So about 13 years ago, my husband and I were working at a church in Atlanta. We were working in youth ministry, and uh, there we are in our flannel or what it plaid, I guess. Um, we moved to Atlanta. We didn't know anybody there, and so we really made this church our family. We really invested in the people in this church, and it was a place for me that represented hope and possibility, and I started to dream of one day becoming a pastor at that church, but to, to be a pastor in that church, I had to go to seminary, and so I started to apply to seminaries. I applied to one here in New England. I applied to one in California, and I applied to a seminary in Atlanta, all seemed like good options, but my heart was really set on the one in Atlanta because that would put me in a pathway to be promoted at this church. I got into that seminary, but they didn't offer me a lot of financial aid, and my ministry schedule wasn't really working out to, to go to school down there at the time. 
And when it came to our options, doors seemed to be closing pretty quickly in Atlanta, but the doors in New England were flinging wide open. I was pretty intent on forcing the Atlanta doors open uh, anyway, but my husband really, really wanted to move to New England, where he was from and where we, we had met. And I had to admit that that would have been easier, and it would have made a lot more sense, and it did seem like that was where God was calling us to do. But I had lived in New England before. I went to college here, and when I was in college, I struggled with depression. And so I associated New England with depression. And I didn't want to come back to this place that had so many sad memories for me. So I started to get anxious. I got anxious that things weren't happening easily in Atlanta to accommodate my dreams. I ended up saying yes to going to the seminary in Massachusetts. Probably figured that one out. <laughs> but I was kicking and screaming as I did it. I had done everything that I could to keep my life plan on life support, but my life plan was slowly starting to die. And over time, I developed this rampant, illogical fear of what our lives were going to look like in New England. And it didn't take too long before that fear turned into anger. I was angry at God for not opening more doors for me where I wanted them open. I was angry at our church for not making things easier for me. I was angry at the seminary for not offering me a better financial package. But the person I directed most of my anger at was my husband, who so badly wanted to move back to New England. And I've shared this story with him before. He gave me permission to share this. I was disappointed about where our lives were taking us, and I wanted to take that out on someone, and he happened to be the closest someone. To everyone who knew us, it looked like we had a great and healthy marriage because that's what you're supposed to have when you work at a church. And we knew how to play that part. But behind each other's, behind closed doors, we were at each other's throats every day. I would attack, he would defend. We unpacked our lives in our new seminary apartment and over and over I found myself picking the same fights and beating the same dead horses and accusing him of the same old things and it didn't take too long before we found new things to be angry about. We piled guilt on top of shame, on top of loneliness, instead of walking together through that hard season like we needed to. And here's the thing. We had met the resurrected Jesus I had just enrolled in seminary to become a pastor. Christ had risen for us. He had risen indeed, and we went back to fishing. I remember I was on the phone with my mom one time, uh, just kind of sharing with her about what was going on, and she asked me point blank if I was committed to my marriage vows, even if it meant I had to give up something that I wanted or expected of life. And I said I didn't know. I had no idea how to fix my marriage or even if my marriage could be fixed. And I, I remember one night after a particularly long and painful argument, we finally admitted that if we didn't make some changes, that we weren't going to make it. We realized that we were becoming people that we didn't want to be. And we were building a marriage that neither of us wanted to be in. And on our own, neither of us had any idea how to untangle what we got entangled up in. So that night we decided to listen to the resurrected Jesus calling out to us from the shoreline. Friends, how are those nets working for you? Haven't you any fish? Come follow me and I will make you. Throw your net over on the other side and see what's over there. We were finally desperate enough to listen. 
So that night, Aaron and I decided to end our marriage because that kind of marriage needed to end. We needed that way of being married to die so that we could learn to live together in a different way. That night, we we decided to let all of our old way of relating to each other die with Christ. All the old wounds, all the old fights, all the old patterns and habits that we were starting to develop and hand ourselves over to the only one who could actually heal our marriage, who could actually heal us, who could actually untangle what we'd gotten tangled up in. I remember sitting next to Aaron that night and holding his hand as he decided to let go of all the hurtful things that I'd said and to forgive me. And I remember him holding my hand as I decided to stop holding him accountable for the things that I was afraid of in my life and open myself up to being remade too. That night we let go of our need to be right. We let go of our need to win, to fix the other one, to control a situation that had felt so out of our control. We let go of of all of the records of wrongs that we had been keeping and we opened ourselves up to Jesus to remaking us instead. And I wish I could tell you that the change happened overnight. The change wasn't immediate. It meant we had to return. We had to choose this over and over again every time we got tempted to go back to fishing. It took time and hard work and intentionality. And we met with a therapist every week. And we we let our Christian community know what was going on so that they could support us. We had a lot to nail up on the cross with Jesus to die. The old narratives, the old patterns, the old wounds. Those things had to die with Christ over and over again. But the moment we decided to leave those things with Jesus on the cross and to follow him with our marriage instead, that was the moment that we realized that we didn't have to do this on our own. Because the invitation from Jesus was never, follow me and then try really, really good to be a good spouse. Or follow me and then try really, really hard to forgive. Or follow me and then try really, really hard to be nice and good. The invitation of Jesus has always been, come follow me and I will make you. And the good news for Aaron and me was that over time, in the place of those old ways of doing things, in the place of those old fishing boats, God created new space for new things in our marriage, for new trust and warmth and so much laughter. Have you met my husband? He's delightful. I've come to experience a kind of freedom and joy and partnership that I didn't even know was possible with another human being. I opened myself up to falling in love with living in New England and to falling in love with this church and to falling in love with Jesus in a totally different way. Friends, the hard news is that resurrection only comes after death. But the good news is that after death comes resurrection. Because it turns out that this, this right here, is how God changes the world. When Peter decided to go back to fishing, the other disciples followed him there. Humans are herd animals. We follow the people in front of us. We follow what everyone else is doing. And the world stays stuck in its old patterns and its old narratives and its old sins and shame. But when Peter finally recognized Jesus on the shoreline, he does what we would imagine Peter would do. He jumps straight out of the boat straight into the water to bear hug Jesus, and all the disciples follow him toward Jesus too. When one person, or two people, or a dozen people, when they start following Jesus, when that turns into hundreds, 
or thousands or millions of people who are following Jesus, who are allowing Jesus' spirit to empower us and to change us, to break us out of those cycles, then that will fundamentally change our lives, which will fundamentally change our culture, our neighborhoods, our society, how we serve, how we love, how we interact, because more and more people are going to follow us there toward Jesus. That is what will change the world. One little act of sacrifice and grace and truth at a time. Because when we start to change, we start to see everything around us change too. And so friends, as we close this series, let's hear the same invitation at the end of the story that we heard at the beginning. Follow me. Follow me. We have met the resurrected Jesus. Where in our lives are we still going back to fishing For some of you, maybe today, maybe today is the first time, for maybe the first time in your life, you can make the the same decision that so profoundly changed our marriage. Maybe today you can decide to let go of whatever old way you keep going back to and turn and trust Jesus enough to know what's going to happen when you haul the nets over on the other side. What do you need to be honest with yourself about in your life to follow Christ's invitation in a different way? What do you need to let die in your life so that you can truly live? As you think about those places in your life, where is Jesus calling you from the shoreline? Friends, haven't you any fish? Because God intends more for us than anything our ordinary nets can haul in without Christ. God intends to change the world. Let's pray. God, you do change us, and we've seen it. And we admit that we keep going back to the old way so much of the time in so many places. Lord, this week, would you call out to us from the shoreline, and would you give us the courage to listen, to trust that you can see what we cannot see, and to follow you there. We love you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.